certainly there are forces from the other side. Certainly there are spirits, demons, denizens, darknesses that urge and strive and tempt and push against mankind. But the real fear is not the heart of darkness, the real fear is the heart of man. What happens when the desperately wicked heart of man is unleashed on man? Welcome to the Soul Trap, my name is Joel Tillis and today we are going to be talking about the Columban Massacres. We are going to be talking about a shooting that took place in Colorado some years ago. The Columbine Massacres, often pushed aside, forgotten, only brought up occasionally in conspiracy theories or in psychological case studies. But we are going to be talking about the case that started it all. We're going to be talking about Massacre in the Mountains, the Columbine shooting. You know, we read... And we react now to mass shootings because we are supposed to. Not out of shock and terror, as we one time did. I'm not saying that we are careless monsters, but rather that we are frail human beings caught between two pincers. One, the overload of compassion and guilt and emotion that we are faced with on a trauma-by-trauma basis played out before us on the nightly news. And on the other hand, the tirelessly seeking to focus on what is most important to us. In other words, we just have so much going on in our life and so limited stores of compassion. Things are different now than they were in 1999. While everyone back then thought it was going to be the Y2K bug that changed the face of our culture, little did we know that it would be two young, seemingly innocent boys that would rip open the scabby cover of our nation and expose a festering, bleeding wound, a culture of death and murder, a culture of death and murder unleashed in its most horrid realm, on its most seeming undeserving realm. Now, we cannot even begin to imagine, we cannot even really begin to fathom what it was like. Back then, we hadn't heard a false flag, We hadn't heard of inside jobs. All we knew was that in a quiet, beautiful little mountain town, two young boys who had everything going for them unleashed a world of hell. In case we have forgotten, from mainstream news sources and storytellers, I want to simply recount to you in this first of a series of podcasts the events that took place on April 20th, 1999, in Columbine. The Columbine High School Massacre occurred on April 20th, 1999, at the Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado. The perpetrators, seniors, high school students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, murdered 12 students and one teacher. Ten students were killed in the library, where the pair subsequently committed suicide. At that time, it was the deadliest shooting at a high school in United States history. The crime has inspired several copycats, and Columbine, quote-unquote, has become a byword for school shootings. The two perpetrators injured 21 additional people with gunshots and also exchanged gunfire with the police. Although another three people were injured trying to escape the school. In addition to the shooting, 
The attack involved several homemade bombs that failed to detonate. The largest of these were placed in the cafeteria. Car bombs were also placed in the parking lot and at another location that was intended to divert first responders. To this date, the motive remains unclear. But the pair planned the crime for about a year, supposedly, we are told, and wished for the massacre to rival the Oklahoma City bombing and cause the most deaths in United States history. USA Today referred to the attack as a, quote, planned as a grand, if badly implemented, terrorist bombing. The police were slow to enter the school, and they were heavily criticized at the time for not intervening during the shooting. The the incident resulted in the introduction of what is called the IARD, Immediate Action Rapid Deployment Tactic, which is used in situations where an active shooter is trying to kill people rather than take hostages. Columbine also resulted in an increased emphasis on school security with zero-tolerance policies. Debates were sparked over gun control laws and gun culture, high school cliques, subcultures, bullying, even music such as Marilyn Manson. Also discussed was the moral panic, goths and social outcasts, the use of pharmaceuticals, and way, 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 way below the surface, a fear that possibly antidepressants used and prescribed to the teenagers were themselves the root culprit. In 1996, then 15-year-old Eric Harris created a private website on AOL. It was initially to host Levels Wads Harris had created for use in the first-person shooter video game Doom and Doom 2, as well as Quake. On the site, Harris began a blog which included jokes and his thoughts on parents, school, and friends. It also detailed Harris sneaking out of the house to cause mischief and vandalism, such as lighting fireworks with his friend Dylan Klebold and others. The mascot of Columbine High School is the Rebels, and he called these Rebel Missions. Harris and Klebold adopted the nicknames Reb and Vodka. Beginning in early 1997, the blog postings begin to show the first signs of Harris's anger against society, or so we're told. By the end of the year, the site contained instructions on how to make explosive. Harris wrote, quote, the first true pipe bomb created entirely from scratch by the rebels. Now our only problem is to find the place that will be ground zero. Harris's site attracted few visitors and caused no real concern until March of 1998. Harris ended a blog post detailing murderous fantasies with, quote, All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people, like Brooks Brown, a classmate of his. Brown claims Klebold gave him the web address in an effort to warn him of Harris's threats of violence against him. Others suggest it was a fact discovered by Brooks's brother, Aaron Brown, in 1997. After Brown's parents viewed the site, they contacted Jeffco Sheriff's Office, uh, Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. When investigator Michael Guerrera accessed the website, he discovered numerous violent threats directed against the students, the teachers, you name it. Guerrera wrote a draft, an affidavit requesting a search warrant 
of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb in February 1998 and a suspicion of Harris being involved in the unsolved case. However, the affidavit was never filed. Harris and Klebold kept journals, which were released to the public in 2006, long after anyone really cared about it anymore. In the journals, the pair would eventually document their arsenal and plan of attack. Shortly after the court hearing of a van break-in, Harris reverted his website back to just posting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal instead. It shows a long period of methodical preparation for the massacre. Harris even wrote on his computer about escaping to a foreign country after the attack or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into the New York City Twin Towers. You know, it's very interesting. We read just a moment ago the phrase used, Ground Zero, already mentioned, and now the plan to blow up New York City. And here at the Soul Trap, we've often found that there is, in some ethereal way, a connectivity. It's almost as if some kind of spirit, some kind of universal theme implanted in the societal perversion of our country, in the zeitgeist, seems to percolate its way through. And one has to wonder what spirits were connected between those two events of Columbine and New York. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Harris and Klebold placed two duffel bags in the cafeteria. The day of their murderous plot had finally come. Each of the duffel bags contained propane bombs which were set to detonate at 11.17 during the A lunch shift. Now, Strangely, no witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. The security staff at CHS did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape around 11.14 a.m., which might have been the time that the duffel bags were dropped off. Some internet sleuths claim that the bomb placement can be seen on the surveillance video around 10.58, shortly after the massacre. Police also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the after-prom party held the prior weekend. To this date, there is confusion about the bombs themselves. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the high school as a full-time school resource officer. Gardner usually ate lunch with students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the smoker's pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of CHS and two miles south of the fire station, set to detonate at 11.14. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, causing a small fire, which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to the police at the school the possibility of devices with motion activators. Pretty advanced, isn't it? If I do say so of myself, for two young kids acting alone. But I digress. Around 11.10 a.m., Harris and Klebold arrived separately at CHS. Harris parked his vehicle 
in the junior student parking lot and Klebold parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria was their primary bomb target. The cafeteria had a long outside window wall, ground level doors, and was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window wall. Each car contained bombs timed to detonate at 12 p.m. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered classmate Brooks Brown, with whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Harris, whom he earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Harris seemed unconcerned, commenting, It doesn't matter anymore. Harris went on, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy, and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away. Several minutes later, students departing Columbine for their lunch break observed Brown heading down the South Pierce Street away from the school. Meanwhile, Harris and Klebold armed themselves, using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath black trench coats. They lugged backpacks and duffel bags that were filled with pipe bombs and ammunition. Harris also had his shotgun in one of the bags. Beneath the trench coats, Harris wore a homemade bandolier and a white t-shirt that read, Natural Selection. Hmm. Klebold wore a black t-shirt that read, Wrath. The cafeteria bombs did fail to detonate. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they could have killed or severely wounded all of the 488 students in the cafeteria and possibly even made the ceiling collapse by destroying pillars holding it up, dropping the library into the cafeteria. 11.19 a.m., the shooting begins. Rachel Scott, 17, killed by shots to the head. Richard Castellato, 17, shot in the arm. Daniel Roba, 15, fatally injured. Shots begin to ring out. Children begin to die. Pandemonium sets in. At 1119, 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Castellato were having lunch and sitting on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Klebold threw a pipe bomb toward the parking lot. The bomb only partially detonated. Thinking that the pipe bomb was no more than a crude senior prank, Castellato didn't take it seriously. Several students who were inside the school during the incident first thought that they were watching a prank. A witness reported hearing, Go! Go! before Klebold and Harris pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting at Castellato and Scott. Scott was killed instantly when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carbine. One shot was to the left temple. Castellato was shot eight times in the chest, arm, and abdomen. He fell unconscious to the ground and was left paralyzed below the chest. Harris aimed his carbine down the west staircase in the direction of the three students, Daniel, Sean, and Lance. The students were about to walk up the staircase directly below the shooters when all three were shot. One was killed. David Sanders, a teacher and a coach at the school, was in the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire and began warning students. 
The shooters turned and began firing west in the direction of the five students sitting on the grassy hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and legs and fell to the ground, where he faked his death in order to survive. The other three escaped uninjured. Klebold, calmly, calculated, walked down the steps toward the cafeteria. He came directly up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground, weakly calling for help. Klebold said, quote, Sure, I'll help you, then shot the young boy in the face with his shotgun. Graves, paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria's west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Klebold walks toward the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembers Klebold saying, Sorry, dude. Klebold only slightly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. Officials speculated that Klebold went to check on the propane bombs. Harris was still on the top of the stairs shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed 17-year-old Anne Marie as she tried to flee. Klebold came out of the cafeteria and went back up the stairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to a soccer field but did not hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof, very few of which detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Meanwhile, art teacher Patty Nelson was inside the school. She had noticed that the commotion, she had noticed the commotion and walked toward the west entrance with student Brian Anderson. Nielsen had intended to walk outside to tell the students to quote knock it off, thinking they were either filming a video or pulling some high school prank. As Anderson opened the door, the first set of double doors, the gunman shot out the window, injuring him with flying glass. Nielsen was hit in the shoulder herself with shrapnel. Anderson and Nielsen ran back down the hall into the library, and Nielsen alerted the students inside to the danger, telling them to get under desks and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, and he hid inside the magazine room adjacent to the library. 11.22 a.m. Harris had removed his trench coat. The custodian called Deputy Neil Gardner, the assigned resource officer to Columbine, on the school radio, requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south on Pierce Street, where, at 11.23 a.m., he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24 a.m., he heard another call on the school radio, Neil, there's a shooter in the school, quote, end quote. Harris, at the west entrance, immediately turned and fired ten shots from his carbine at Gardner, who was sixty yards away. As Harris reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned over the top of his car and fired four rounds at Harris from his service pistol. Harris ducked back behind the building, and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Harris then re-emerged and fired at least four more rounds at Gardner, which missed 
and struck two parked cars before retreating into the building. However, with all the gunshot and the exchange of fire, no one was actually hit. Gardner reported on his police radio, shots, quote, shots in the building, I need someone in South Lot with me. By this point, Harris had shot 47 times, Klebold just five. The shooters then entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered. Klebold shot Stephanie Munson in the ankle. She was able to walk out of the school. The pair then shot out the windows of the east entrance of the school. After proceeding through the hall several times and shooting toward and missing any student they saw, they went toward the west entrance and turned into the library hallway. Deputy Paul Smoker, a motorcycle patrolman for the sheriff's office, was riding a traffic ticket north of the school when the female down call came in at 11.23. Taking the shortest route, he drove his motorcycle over grass between the athletic field and headed to the west entrance. There he saw other deputies following him in the patrol car. He abandoned his motorcycle for the safety of the car. The two deputies had begun to rescue two wounded students near the ball field when another gunfight broke out at 11.26. As Harris returned to the double doors and again began shooting at Deputy Gardner, who returned fire. From the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Harris, who again retreated into the building. As before, no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, teacher Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallantine, initially told students to get under the tables, then successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. By now, Harris and Klebold were inside the main hallway. Sanders and another student were down at the end of the hallway, where he gestured for students in the library to stay. Maybe one of the most costly decisions that could have been made. They encountered Harris and Klebold, who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student turned and ran in opposite direction. Harris and Klebold shot at them both, with Harris hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck, but missing the student. The latter ran into a science classroom and warned everyone to hide. Klebold walked over towards Sanders, who had collapsed, and tossed a pipe bomb down the hall, then returned to Harris up the north hallway. Sanders, struck, struggled toward the science area, and the teacher took him into the classroom where 30 students were located. Due to his knowledge of first aid, student Aaron Hansey was brought to the classroom from another by teachers, despite the unfolding commotion. With the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller, Hansey administered first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with police for up to three hours. I have often wondered what the sounds must have been like. I've often wondered what the sounds of history must have been like. What were the sounds the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? Was there a collective gasp of horror and outrage? Was there a, a confused mumbling that moved through the crowd? 
Or was there a collective groan of unbearable silence as people sat stunned, as history unfurled its macabre manner before their very eyes? In the case of Columbine, we can hear, we can hear the sounds of history as two boys slaughter helpless children. It is a very, very frightening thing to think of what took place that day. To imagine what those men, young men were doing, what those survivors, victims were going through. But we didn't have to imagine the sound. We know the sound. 